let's let you know what we're gonna do. I, I want to study this in depth. It's a few psukim. It's a very strange story. The book of Vayikra primarily is all about the sacrifices, all about the offering, all about what takes place in the Mishkan, all about the Kohanim. There are almost no narratives, almost no stories in the entire book of Vayikra. There are two stories. One is about Nadav and Avihu, the two sons of Aaron who go in on the you know into the Holy of Holies and. Without digging deeply, it's, it's so clear that that story is meant to be a commentary on how we're supposed to respect that that is holy. Like, that story fits so perfectly. Like, it makes sense. These are two people who are acting perhaps a little bit too uh, casually in regards to the divine. They enter, whether they were drinking or not, whatever. They enter into the Holy of Holies without explicit instructions to do so. And for that reason, they're punished. It's clearly a commentary on the Mishkan that's being built. It also takes place in the day the Mishkan was completed on the, well, on the inauguration day, right? So it's, it so clearly fits the rest of the book. There is one other story, which we're going to read together right now, which doesn't seem to have anything to do with the book of Ayikra. It's a story which in and of itself is challenging, but also we have to ask ourselves what it's doing in the book of Ayikra. And even more than that, I want you to appreciate that this week's Parsha, in some respects, is really the end of the book of Ayikra. In this week's Parsha is where all the laws of the Kahuna end, Next week's parsha is Bahar. It talks about Shemitah. It talks about the sabbatical year. And Bechukosa, it talks about what happens when you do the mitzvos, when you, when you do Averos. It's, 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 some actually see that almost as like an independent book. You know, we, we treat it as five books, you know, and not, not, and not six books. But there's some who see Bahar and Bechukosa as almost a book onto its own. Because really, Vayikra ends right now. And if that's the case, if that, if, according to that, that framing, then the story we're about to read is the culmination of the book of Ayikra. It's the culmination of all the discussions of offerings, of sacrifices, of Kohanim, of all the elements of holiness. This story is the end, okay? In which case, we have to ask ourselves if it's really put at the end of the book, you have to ask, like, why? What, what does it have to do with everything we've been discussing for the past, you know, X amount of weeks, you know? So that's a question we're going to have to address as well. So before we jump into the, the, this story that we're going to read together, uh, the things we have to think about is, A, what is the meaning of the story, but also its placement in the book of Ayikra, specifically here at the, really the culmination of the laws of Ayikra. What is it doing here? Those are the questions we're going to try to address. And what I'd like to do is read this together. I want us to, to not just, I, want to, I don't want to just talk. I want us to learn. And so we're going to read this Pasuk by Pasuk, verse by verse. First, I'm actually going to read through it very quickly in English. So we have the full picture, and then we're going to go back and read it verse by verse. And I'd love to hear from you. Uh, just blurt out questions we have. Like, it's a very strange story. And so think, ask, talk, and let's, let's learn together. Okay? Uh, we're on page, we're going to start on page 693. Um, 693. And we're going to read through this in English first, and then we'll read through it in Hebrew. Okay? Okay, so page 693, the son of an Israelite woman went out and he was the son of an Egyptian man. Okay, so you have someone who is a child of both an Egyptian man and a Jewish woman. Okay, and this, this man went out, it says, among the children of Israel. They fought in the camp, the son of the Israelite woman and an Israelite man. Okay, you lost yet? You should be. Okay, it's a little bit strange, right? It's not exactly written in a very descriptive fashion. But we're told that this individual whose father is an Egyptian, whose mother is a Jewess, is an Israeli, is, is, a, is, is a Bas Yisrael, uh, he, this man fights with another Jewish man, okay? The son of the Israelite woman pronounced the name and blasphemed, okay? So it seems like he curses God. So they brought him to Moshe. The name of his mother was Shlomi's daughter of Divri of the tribe of Dan. Okay, again, the writing style over here is kind of awkward, right? It's like we first were introduced to the mother and now we're being told, you know, her name and her tribe, okay? They placed him under guard 
to clarify for themselves through Hashem. Okay, so it seems like Moshe did not know what to do. We're in the Chumash on page 693. Okay. Uh, Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, Remove the blasphemer to the outside of the camp, and all those who heard shall lean their hands upon his head. Okay, so all those who heard him curse God should put their ha- lean their hands on his head. The entire assembly shall stone him. Okay, and to the children of Israel you shall speak, saying, Any man who will blaspheme his God shall bear his sin, and one who pronounces blasphemously the name of Hashem shall be put to death. The entire assembly shall surely stone him, proselyte and native alike. Okay, so whether, okay, anyone living among the Jewish people, when he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. I have a question. Yes. I'm a little bit mixed up. The one who was stoned, was that the one whose father was the Egyptian or the one who was a Jew? Yeah, so good question. So, so the one who was stoned, the one who was put in, the one who cursed God was the one whose mother was a Jew and whose father was an Egyptian. Now, again, let's keep in mind, halakhically, if the mother is Jewish, yeah. he's Jewish, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but the father, the, so there's two people fighting. The one whose father was an Egyptian is the one who curses God. He's put into jail. They don't know what to do. Moshe asks God. God says, we stone the person, okay? Now, let's keep on reading though. And a man, if he strikes, so God is still speaking to Moshe. The question on the table was, God, what do we do with someone who curses God, curses, curses you, okay? And God said, what to do? You would think the passage ends here, but God's not done. God continues and starts teaching something else. And we'll have to ask ourselves, what in the world is doing here? And a man, if he strikes mortally any human life, he shall be put to death. In other words, if someone kills someone, and back in when we had a great court, the punishment was capital punishment, okay? And a man who strikes mortally an animal, uh, animal life shall make restitution, a life for a life. Whereas if a person kills an animal, you don't die over killing an animal, you have to pay back, okay? And if a man inflicts a wound in his fellow as he did, so shall be done to him, okay? So if a person damages, then there's a punishment, although uh, this is the famous verse, a break for a break, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, just as he will have inflicted a wound on a person, so shall be inflicted upon him. And it's worth mentioning that our sages take for granted that this is not to be understood literally. We don't actually, if, I, uh, if a person goes ahead and knocks out the eye of someone else, their eye does not get knocked out. That is not Jewish law. Jewish law is that you pay for the amount of damages that it costed, but it's framed in this very stark language. But what it means, again, okay, it's a discussion for another time, but this is a classic example where we have the written law, what is written over here, Torah Shabiksav, and Torah Shabalpeh, the oral law, which sometimes shifts the, the, the picture, okay? So again, we don't actually knock out, if a person knocks out your tooth, they don't get their tooth knocked out. They have to pay you back for the value, the, the damages uh, caused by, the, by their action, okay? One who strikes an animal shall make restitution, and one who strikes a person shall be put to death. There shall be one law for you, it shall be for proselytes and native alike, for I, Hashem, am your God. Moshe spoke to the children of Israel, and they took the blasphemer to the outside of the camp, and they stoned him to death, and the children of Israel did as Hashem had commanded Moshe. Okay? Questions. What questions do you have? Why all of a sudden are we talking about um, capital punishment and talking about uh, doing something to an animal and what the, what the uh, remedy is for that? And the case before them was just entirely the person who cursed uh, God. Okay, excellent. So question number one, for those who uh, do not hear on, no, who are not here on the recording, uh, is, is, that, is that basic is, is a question. The question is, Moshe did not know, the Jewish people did not know what to do with this individual who cursed God. So they said, God, what do we do in this case? And God says, you stone him. Adkan, you stop over here. But instead, what does God do? He then says, oh, and if you kill someone, you get killed. If you hurt someone, you, get, you, get, you have to pay damages. If you hurt an animal, you have to pay damages. Why is there this whole discussion about damages? It, it, there is a question. Give the answer. 
Gamarnu, you're done. Why is God continuing giving a whole long list of all the, the, the payments or the punishments for different types of damages or different types of times that a person may kill a person or an animal? Strange. Okay. Any other questions? Find a stupid question. Ha, special. Go ahead. Really a stupid question. <laughs> Since they should all put their hands on his head and then they should, he should be stoned, right? How could they stone him if their hands are on their head? Wouldn't they also get stoned? No, no, they do it first. They do it first. Yeah, according to Jewish law, I know there's a little gory, but they, they, they do smicha first. We'll have to ask ourselves, like, what is the symbolism of them doing smicha, right? Smicha is like you put your hands, you know, sometimes we do that when we bless a child or something. When before they would bring a sacrifice, the original smicha is before they would bring a sacrifice, they would lean on the animal um, before bringing a sacrifice. That's the original smicha that we find in the Torah. Um, but the, to answer your question, they do that, they walk away, and... So basically, the doing it is saying, we're not doing this because we want to, we're doing it because God wants Okay, could be, could be. We'll have to come back and ask ourselves, like, what's that all about? Good. Yeah, because it's reminiscent of the sacrifices. Yes, it definitely does seem strange. Like, this is something that normally before we bring an offering, we do smicha, we, we put our hands on it, we, we, right? And that's what they're doing over here. So we have to think about... What connection is there between putting, uh, you know, putting our hands on the animal and perhaps them putting their hands on this individual? Okay? Yes? What's the actual meaning of the word smicha? A smicha? Yeah. Um, somech means to, like, uh, Hashem lechol hanoflim, that God, like, um, um, in, the ca- in this case, it means, like, well, it's kind of the opposite. So, but, but uh, the con- in the context of smicha, it's that basically we're putting our hands, we're, we're putting our weight, like to be somech is like to, to uh, be supported. There we go. So support, that's actually right. So to support, right? So the doing smicha is like, we're not supporting by putting our hands, but the animal supporting us, right? So, right. And so somech Hashem lechalanoflim, which we say in, the ash, in Ashrei, is that Hashem supports those who have fallen. So that's the idea of smicha. It's not so much the act that we're doing, but it's the, the sum total of what's taking place, that the animal is supporting us. Okay? Good. Okay, so still the story's a little strange, right? We haven't addressed in any way what's this doing at the end of Sefer Vayikra. Like, what does what that have to do with the Karbanos? Nothing about, other than the smicha, right? Which maybe, maybe, but it doesn't, like, what does this have to do with Karbanos and offerings, which has been the theme of this entire book, okay? So now let's go back and let's read it again, right? You have to first get a basic familiarity and now let's read it verse by verse. I'm going to read it in Hebrew this time. I'll translate, of course, uh, but we'll go back. It's the last word on page 690. And, and let's, let's, let's read it. We'll ask some more questions. We'll try to give some more answers. And I, I hope to walk away with uh, a unique uh, approach over here, which, which uh, I'm excited to share with you. Okay. So, Vayetze ben Isha Yisraelis, um, and this, uh, this son of a Jewish woman went out. Okay. Vehu ben Ish Mitzri, and he is the son of an Egyptian. Besoch bene Yisrael. Okay into the Jewish people. So we have to pause over there and ask ourselves, where did he go out? Like, what is this, this emphasis? Like, he went out. Went out from where, right? What does it mean, he went out? What, what's the emphasis on the fact that he went out? So you look like you're going to say something. Out of his zone, out of his, um, what he normally does. Okay, so it's like a deviation. You say it's more of like a, there is this, okay, beautiful. So uh, maybe on some level, the going out is not necessarily talking about a geographical going out where he was in point A and now he's in point B, but perhaps this reflects a certain deviation. This is not the norm. Like he's doing something out of the ordinary and therefore the Torah emphasizes the going out. That could be, yes? Or that he didn't live among the Israelites. He went out. Okay. Okay. Interesting, right? So that would be very strange. Okay. Good. But you're, you're, it's an excellent, excellent suggestion, and that is that he's going out, 
to be among the Jews, which implies that until that point, he wasn't among the Jews. Strange. Why wasn't he? Where, where was he? You know, presumably he's... He was an intermarried guy, and he Okay, so there's perhaps, there's, oh God, you're using modern terminology, but, uh, but you know, he didn't identify as a Jew. But let's ask a more, okay, let, let's come back to the point you're making. This is an excellent point. Again, so the point Rachel's making is that Vayetzeh, and then it says he goes out to um, be amongst the Jewish people, implying that until this point, he wasn't among the Jewish people. Okay, let's keep on reading. So, so let, um, you know, let's, let's pause right here. So the Ibn Ezra, the Ibn Ezra says, very simply, he went out of his tent. He went out of his tent. Okay. So, I mean, the, the Ramban asks on the Ibn Ezra, who cares? You know, every morning does it say, and God spoke to Moshe. First, Moshe woke up and he washed his hands and he walked out of his tent and God spoke to Moshe. Who cares? That's not relevant information. Like, why do you need to know that, right? That's not important. And therefore, the Ramban says, the idea is, the f- emphasis is besoch b'nei Israel, that what's about to take place is besoch b'nei Israel. It's amongst the Jewish people. It's in public. It's in public. And therefore, the crime that he's about to commit is much more severe because of the fact that it's done in a public setting. That's how the Ramban understands the emphasis of him going out among the, in the camp, among the Jewish people is that it's setting the stage for what he's about to do. Now, the, what's strange about this approach is that, um, is that it's still a little bit early to tell us this information. That they should, the Torah should let us know this when he curses God. It should say he cursed God, b'soch b'nei Yisrael, among the Jewish people. To tell us this now, it's okay, it's setting the stage, but it still, still seems a little bit strange. What's also strange, and I'll come to your point in a second, is, the, is, uh, is another word that's mentioned that seems to be a little bit of a, re, of a re, re, reiteration, excuse me, of the, of the words before, and they fought in the camp. Okay, there seems to be this emphasis of the geographic location of where this is taking place. A, he went out into the Jewish people and they fought in the camp. What's, what's going on over here? And... I'll just say one more point. This really touched upon what Rachel said earlier. What Rashi suggests, Rashi shares the Midrashic understanding of this, of this verse. And now it's all going to make sense to us. So what does it mean that he went out among, to be among the Jewish people and they fought in the camp? What it means is as follows. Again, he is the son of a Jewess, of Israelis, of a, of a Jewish woman. And he is also the son of an Egyptian non-Jewish man. So is he Jewish from a halachic perspective? 1,000%. Which tribe is he a part of? Egyptian. That, that, which is not a tribe, right? There is no 13th tribe called Egyptians, right? Exactly, right? So we know if a Kohen, right? Who, how do you become a Kohen? If your father is a Kohen, we all know the famous joke, right? So you, you become, so the tribe that you are a part of is based on your father's tribe. Your, your Jewish status is based on mother. Your, your tribe is based on one's father. So this individual, where's, you know, the Jewish people travel exactly. He has nowhere to live. The Jewish people traveled in, those, in that time by camp, by, by tribe. You had the tribe of Yehuda in the front. You had the tribe of Reuben. You had all the tribes traveling together, and then they would stop, and then they would set up camp, and they would live. At a later point, and when they come to the land of Israel, they accommodate, they, they work out a system where, of course, we're going to welcome the converts and make sure the convert feels incredibly welcome into the camp. But at this point, that was not worked out so much. And basically, all you have in the Torah is the tribes are living by the tribes. And therefore, this man, as Rachel pointed out, he's going, he's somewhere else. And now he's coming to Soch B'nei Israel because, because he is not among the Jewish people right now because he's living on the periphery. He has nowhere to live. This is a real dilemma, a real problem, a real challenge that he has, right? And then it says, they fight 
in the camp. What does that mean? So Rashi's understanding is they fight about the encampment. In other words, not literally in the camp, but about where do you encamp? Where do you set up tent? And he was arguing with someone that he wanted to set up tent somewhere. And this person said to him, you're not part of my tribe. You don't belong here. And they fought, right? And they fought about this point, about the fact that he was in the wrong, or so to speak, they were debating as to whether or not he was in the right place. And therefore, this verse now reads beautifully. This man, who is not, who because of his identity, doesn't really have a place within the Jewish people, he now goes, Besoch ben Israel, amongst the Jewish people, and they fight um, about the camp, Bena Yisraelis, this this son of a Jewish woman, Veisha Israeli, and this man, this other man from this other tribe, who is, who is you know, they're fighting over so some... Whose father and mother was Jewish. Exactly. Exactly. Now, okay, you're with me? Okay, so now we understand this first verse. Now, Rashi adds one more important detail, and that is that what do you do when you fight? What do you do when you argue in Jewish, uh, in Jewish law? Where are you supposed to go? Beit Din. Din. You go to court. Exactly. So Rashi's... Beit Din, to court, to the Jewish courts. So Rashi assumes, the Midrashim assume, that if they were arguing, what did they do next? They went to court. They went to court uh, to discuss this question. Is this man, anonymous man, does he have a right to live in this place or not? Right? Or this other person, right, they're arguing about this piece of land, does he have a right to live in this place? They go to court. Now, unfortunately, it seems like the courts came back with a ruling that did not sit well with this man, this Ben Isha Yisraelis, this man who, is, who has a Jewish mother, but not a Jewish father, the ruling was, you cannot live among the tribes. You're going to have a separate location for you, which he didn't take well, okay? Which, which halakhically is correct. Again, the tribe follows the father. Now, basically, he was told his, his, his family ultimately uh, comes from the tr- tribe of Dun, okay? His mother's tribe is a tribe of Dun, okay? And basically, he's being told, you cannot live among those people. You don't have the right to live amongst those people. You have to live, kind of what he was seemingly was doing until now, a little bit on the periphery, okay? Which is t- challenging. It's challenging, yes. Were there other people on the periphery? And then were there other people that... It's a good question. I mean, we have a, a discussion of Erev Rav, of this huge group of people, according to some, you know, tremendous, almost maybe even larger than the Jewish people, which is shocking to think about. Um, a lot of discussion about what happened to these group, this group of people. There's some discussion about them, maybe some of them dying, or maybe all of them even dying during the sin of the, of the golden calf. Um, you know, that, that there maybe is... that. So we don't know. We don't have explicit indication of others who don't really, uh, who don't have a place. According to some, actually, Yisro, Yisro, uh, according to some, the reason he ultimately leaves the Jewish people is because of this issue. He feels like he doesn't have a place. He says, yes, you're accepting me, you're treating me so respectfully, but I don't really have a home. I don't really have a location that's mine. And according to some, that's what, that's what ultimately caused him, according to some, to leave the Jewish people and go back home. Okay, but it's important. You want a home, you want a place, right? It's, 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 it's an integral part of, of who we are. Again, once they get to Israel, they are very des- they're designated land, even in choice lands, really. Uh, they're, they're given lands among the Leviim. Uh, they're choice places for them to live, but at this point, it's challenging. And ultimately, the court rules, not in his favor, okay? So what happens next? Let's keep on reading. Pasuk Yud Aleph. Um, we're on page 692. I'm reading in the Hebrew. Vayikov ben ha'isha ha'yisraelis es Hashem. Okay, so this... This man whose mother is a Yisraelis, uh, he goes ahead and he curses God, and it seems like and he curses again, and they bring him to Moshe, 
Okay? And his mother, now we're introduced to his mother, because now, in Tolomidim, his mother's name wasn't as relevant, but now his mother's name is relevant, as we'll see. Um, the name of his mother is Shlomis Basdivri um, Lamate Dan, according to the tribe of Dan. Okay, so what's going on over here? He loses the court case, and he curses God. Seems very strange. Like, what, what, is, what does one have to do with the other? He loses, I mean, you know, I guess, I guess people do that. They get upset, they, they just curse. Okay, uh, it, seems, it seems a little bit like we're, we're missing something over here. Like, that's like... He's cursing, he should, I don't know, maybe curse the person that he fought with, right? He should be mad at him or mad at the courts, right? But he's cursing God. Why is he cursing God? Okay, he curses not just God, but Hashem, the name, the name, okay? Now, so, right, so why is he cursing God over here? So Rabbeinu Bachia suggests a fascinating suggestion. Uh, by giving us her name, we now learn a little bit more about who this person is. The Midrashim tell us that Shlomis Bastivri, her, um, her husband was one day, back when they were still in Egypt, her husband was one day, um, was one day, uh, what's it called? In, in the, you know, her husband, basically an Egyptian went ahead and ensured that her husband was out in the fields and then went to her tent or home, whatever it is, and violated her, okay? Violated his mother, okay? And then later on, later on when this man, um, Shlomis's real husband realized what was happening. The Egyptian went ahead and started beating him. Okay? Now, wait a second. Does that sound familiar? The Egyptian beating someone? Do you know of a story like that? Moshe, Moshe right? The very first story, right? Of Moshe going ahead and beating. So basically, this Egyptian realizes his cover is blown. It's not so appropriate, even for the Egyptians or whatever, you know, they should go ahead and do such an action. And therefore he realizes that this man, that Shlomis' husband is aware of what happened. He therefore starts beating him, almost killing this, basically going ahead and possibly killing this man. Okay. And Moshe comes along and sees what's happening. And what does Moshe do? How does Moshe kill this man? The name of God. Moshe uses the name of God. Okay, the Midrash, I mean, you could look at it, it's, it's, it's a little bit here. I'll, I'll just read to you the words. Uh, I'm going to have to turn the pages. Uh, but as you'll see, it's all the way in the beginning of Parsha Shemos. It says, um, da, 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 da. Where are we? Okay, it says, um, okay, Vayifen Kovacho, okay, he looks in each way, okay, um, he looks in both ways, okay, Vayachas Mitri Vayitmineo Bechal. Literally, Literally, it means that he hit him. Okay, literally means that he hit him. Uh, but there are a number of places, there are a number of places which indicates, uh, certainly in the Midrashic literature, but there is a Pasuk, and I'm actually blanking on the Pasuk right now, but there, the Midrashic literature certainly suggests that Moshe did not actually go ahead and, um, here, it's actually, uh, uh, yeah, all right. In the next verse, that's the first indication. Halorgeni ata Omer. In the next verse, when there are two Jews fighting, fighting and, they, and Moshe tries to break them up. And what do they say? Halorgeni ata Omer. Do you want, it doesn't even translate. Are you going to kill us? Are you saying? What does that mean? You're going to kill us? Are you saying? And the Midrashim understand that what it means is that they're saying, are you going to kill us with words wow. like you killed that Egyptian? Halogeni Atta Omer, you're going to kill us as you're saying, like with your mouth. In other words, Moshe utilized the name of God, okay? Whatever that means. Some mystical thing. He used the name of God. He invoked the name of God. And through the name of God, he goes ahead and kills this man's father. And so Rabbeinu Bachia suggests, he says, you know what's going on over here? What's going on? He suggests the reason that he's cursing God is because the name specifically is because he suggests the Jewish people were mocking him. They were saying, ha, Moshe killed your father with God's name. 
right? In other words, this person comes out of court. He's already incensed. He's already so incredibly upset over what's going on. And, but, but part of it is his whole history is strange and difficult and challenging history, right? And, and all the Jews know, know the story about this person. It's the one person. And it's the story of Moshe. Everyone knows exactly what, what happened, you know? And it's, it's, it's shameful. It's embarrassing. And Moshe goes in and kills his father, Right? You can imagine that this person's not live an easy emotional life, to say the least, right? And it's, so the Rabbeinu Bachi says something very harsh about the Jewish people. They were making fun of him because Moshe killed their, his father with God's name. And that's why he goes ahead and curses God's name. Okay? It's a challenging passage to read, but it makes a little bit of sense now why it says specifically curses God's name and why we're introduced to who his mother was because it gives us a little bit more context. Okay, let's keep on, keep on reading. Any questions? Good? No? Okay. mishmar. Okay. And they placed him in jail. Lifrosh lahem al Hashem so that God will, um, God will explain um, what, what, you know, what to do. Now, why was there a suffix? Why was there a doubt over here? Uh, the laws, the fact that you're supposed to kill someone who curses God um, is actually, is, is, was actually established. Uh, the Barbanel suggests that the reason there was a lack of clarity over here was because they knew what to do for a Jew, for a full-fledged Jew. This was the first time they're grappling with someone who they didn't really know exactly what their status was. On the one hand, his mother's Jewish. On the other hand, his father's Jewish. Do we treat this person like a Jew? Do we not treat this person like a Jew? Right? If he's not a Jew, the punishment is not death. Right? The non-Jews are not prohibited against cursing God. Okay? Uh, or at least the punishment would not be death for them to do so. Right? Whereas if he was considered a Jew, the punishment would be that, he is, that, that the punishment is uh, is death. And therefore, the Barbanel suggests that the reason they were misupak, the reason they were in doubt, was due to the question of how do we treat this person? What's this person's status? Okay? Now, it's interesting that if that's the case, this is one of the places that we really learn uh, that a person's uh, status goes after their mother, that a person's identity as, of, as, as, as a Jew goes after their mother. You know, we're basically talking about Jewish identity over here. And what's the context? The context we learn it from someone who's a sinner, right? I think it's like there's something very beautiful about that. In other words, that despite our, our act, no matter how far we fall, no matter how far we fail, that identity as a Jew is still there, right? There are other places like this that we have like strange laws. Like, for example, how do you know that, that 10 men make up a minion? Anyone know what the source of that in the source? Commandments? Sorry? Not from the Ten Commandments, no. It's from? It's from the uh, spies. From the spies, that's right, 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 Peter, as Peter Jonathan says, from the spies, right? So we say that, without getting into all the details, basically the ten spies, not Yeshua and Kali, the good spies, the ten spies who are about to get killed are called Ada. Ada is a congregation, and we know they're ten people. They're, ah, from here we learn that ten people make up a minion. From there you learn, these are people who are about to die, right? But again, you have that, be- uh, to me, such a beautiful, majestic theme that a person who's about to be killed right? No matter what, no matter how far we fall, a person, once a person is a Jew, then, then we maintain that status. There's no way of eradicating that status. It's through and through and through. We can learn from the Mikalo, from the one who curses God, that, ah, this is a Jew. This is a Jew. I, I, I find that, yeah, uplifting. Okay, fine. So, fine. Now, how does God respond? Let's now see the response of Hashem. Verse 13. God spoke to Moshe, saying, Okay, and all those who heard should place their hands um, on his head. Okay, and the congregation stones him. The congregation stones him. Now, it's a pretty severe punishment for cursing God, right? If I were to tell you that if you curse God, you get stoned, you might get a little uncomfortable. It seems pretty harsh. Uh, the Sefer Achinuch suggests and points out that 
you know, we don't, we don't take this seriously enough, but, but, it's, but this story highlights how much, how, how important it is, and that is our, our faculty of speech. Our faculty of speech is the, one of, or the most defining feature of what it means to be a human. You know, what we are able to do with our mouth is incredible. Whether it's the kind word that can literally save someone's life, whether it's speaking to God, right? I could, with my mouth, communicate with the divine. It doesn't make any sense, right? Our mouths, our speech, our faculty of speech is so precious, it's so precious. You know, the Maharal writes somewhere that, uh, that the reason that there, is severe pu- that, that there is severe punishment for, and, and specifically a punishment of exile. Oftentimes we'll find exile as a punishment for someone who misuses speech. Why is the punishment exile? He suggests that speech is something which really doesn't belong on this earth. Okay? Speech is something that really doesn't belong on this earth. So when we bring it into this world, we have to do so with such incredible sensitivity. And if, if, if we don't, then basically, then by definition, then speech almost by definition is really in exile. Speech by definition is not really where it's supposed to be. Let me say this a little better. Speech is something that comes from a different world. It's spiritual. It's something incredibly spiritual. What we're able to do with our mouth, okay? The faculty of speech is something which is spiritual. So if you're going to bring something so potent, so strong into this world, unless you have the proper safeguard, almost by definition, it's out of its regular zone. Because speech doesn't really belong here. And therefore, the punishment is exile. The example, if you give an example, like if you wanted to bring a lion to Baltimore, okay, does a lion belong in Baltimore? No, it belongs in, I don't know, some African whatever, right? It doesn't belong in Baltimore. If you want to bring a lion into Baltimore, you have to make a, I don't know, a cage, a proper habitat, etc. right? So that's what speech is. Speech is like a lion. Speech is something which is incredibly powerful. It doesn't really belong here, right? So speech almost by definition corresponds to this notion of exile, right? Um, and therefore, whenever we do use speech, we have to treat it as something like a lion. Anytime I open my mouth, it's like, it's something which is so otherworldly, and therefore I have to create the proper mascara, the proper safeguarding to bring it to this world. And if I don't, by definition, like a lion in the streets of Baltimore, it doesn't belong here. And therefore the punishment oftentimes is that the person who misuses, abuses speech has to be taken out of their home, out of their place. Okay? So powerful words. And that's what the Savior is saying. Yeah, it's not. If, yeah, you think that stoning someone for cursing God is too big of a deal. That's because we, myself included, we don't take speech seriously. We just say words. We let things come out of our mouth all the time. We just fill up uh, emptiness. We fill up silence with, with words. And that's, that's neutral. And then we say things we shouldn't say, et cetera, et cetera, right? We don't realize, we don't appreciate how valuable speech is. This story is one of many in the Torah that highlights the incredible importance of speech. Okay, fine. So that's, that's why the punishment is so severe. What we still need to address is why are they being so mech? Why are they uh, placing their hands on him? Okay, Rashi says to absolve their guilt. The Jewish people have to absolve their guilt. It doesn't explain what their guilt is. Maybe you could say, according to the approach we saw earlier, Abinu Bachia, that they were mocking him. They almost in some ways caused him to curse God. I wouldn't say caused him, but they were the one, remember, according to one approach, they were making fun of him. They were saying, ah, your father is the one who was killed by God's name, right? Um, so in some way, there's some level of guilt, and therefore they place their hands on him to say that they are not guilty. When we, go, when we do smicha on a karban, we're basically what we're saying is that I'm taking my sins, I'm begging God for forgiveness, and I'm, so to speak, at least metaphorically, placing my sins on the animal. And so here, too, the people are saying, we are not guilty. We'll have to come back to that idea. It needs, it needs some more developing, but let's, let's hold off on that. Okay? Then, what follows... And here we had the million-dollar question. What follows is a list of laws. We're not going to read them again inside, which has all the laws about if you go ahead and kill someone, you get killed. If you damage someone, you have to pay for damages. If you kill an animal, you, get, uh, you have to pay. If you hurt an animal, you have to pay, right? What in the world 
are those laws doing here, right? There are five, uh, eight verses over here from Tesvav, from 15 to 23, which are all about damages and, 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 and when a person kills someone, it has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Why in the world does Moshe, does God, relay these laws to Moshe right over here? Any thoughts? Fair question? Okay. Okay, so with that question in mind, now we're going to kind of go into a whole different dimension. You ready? Something a little bit wild, a little bit different, a little off the beaten path. And I want to share with you an approach, a beautiful approach on this whole story from uh, a teacher of mine, Rabbi Ezra Breidowitz. He's a principal of a school in Toronto, a tremendous tamachacham, a tremendous scholar, and a very creative thinker. And he suggests the following idea. It starts with just one line, one line in the Arizal. The Arizal was one of the great mystics. He really uh, blazed a new trail in, in how to study mysticism, how to study Kabbalah. Um, and he says the following idea, which we're going to have to unpack. He says the Mekalel, this individual over here, the one who curses God, he is a Gilgal, a reincarnation of Cain, Cain, of Cain. Okay, so let's unpack each of those words. Okay, in Jewish thought, there is a debate amongst Jewish thinkers about this notion of reincarnation. Some Jewish thinkers, Rav Sadia Gaon, very prominent Jewish thinker says, reincarnation is not a Jewish idea. We don't believe in it. See you later and basically dismisses the whole notion of reincarnation, okay? There are others, many, I would say, who say, no, reincarnation is a Jewish idea. It plays, expresses itself in laws like Yibum, where, uh, which, which plays a significant role in the story of Shavuos, where one brother dies, and then an, uh, the other brother marries the, marries the widowed wife, and, and somehow brings down the soul of the deceased through their child. There, there are places where there's an indication of, of Yibum, excuse me, of Gilgal, of reincarnation, and the mystics certainly believe in reincarnation, and they have extensive literature about reincarnation. So the Arizal is telling us that this individual we're reading about, this individual who cursed God, this individual who is, uh, who uh, was, um, this individual who is, was ultimately killed, killed for cursing God, he is a reincarnation of Cain, okay, of Cain. How did he get to that? Good, 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 good. That's, that's what we're going to have to get to. So, so now, whether you are a mystic or not, whenever the Arizal tells you that, what he's also telling you is essentially addressing your question. There's obviously something in the story which indicates some similarity between this individual and Cain, right? In other words, if, if they, we're saying he's a reincarnation, that means that it's in some ways the same personality. What a reincarnation means is that it's the soul of that person is now in this person's soul. That means that there's some, the Rizal saw something in this text which indicated that this individual is a reincarnation, uh, that there's a connection, there's some simila- similar characteristics between Cain, Cain and this individual. So what in the world is that? So let's turn a whole bunch of pages. Let's quickly review a story, which I think we know, but maybe don't know, uh, you know, we haven't studied in a while, the story of Cain and Hevel. So the two brothers, that's right. So some, according to some, yes, according to, that's an excellent point. According to some, the reason we name them is that we believe that their soul is going to be, you know, brought back into this world through them. Excellent. Yes. Yes. Okay. Let's look back all the way back to page 20. Okay. Page 20. Oh yeah. We're going all the way back to the beginning. Voracious. Okay, you with me? Okay. Okay, so let's, let's go through the story somewhat quickly because we're somewhat familiar with the story, uh, but, but I think we'll see something very beautiful, very profound um, in, this, in this passage. So, Vayhi Hevel, Roetzon, Vikayan Haya Oved Adama, Hevel was a shepherd, Kayan Cain was a farmer. 
was the end of days, okay, whatever that verse means. And Cain brings an offering from his fruits as an offering to God. And Hevel also brings from his flock as an offering, and they're the best of his flock. And God responds to Hevel's offering and to, his, and to his offering, right? So they both bring some offering, and it seems, doesn't tell us how God responds, but it seems like maybe some divine fire, some fire came down from heaven and consumes the offerings of Hevel, of Abel, but God ignores, seemingly, the offering of Cain, okay? So what happens next? Vel Cain vel minchaso lo okay? And to Cain and his offering, uh, he did not, God did not pay attention, God did not turn. Vayichar le Cain me'od, and Cain was very angry. Vayiplu panav, and literally his face fell. What does that mean a face to, for, for a face to fall? What is the? Upset. He was upset. Was, let's go a little bit deeper. What more than upset? When a person's face falls, it's, not, it's more than the first word was anger, right? Vayiplu panav, when a face falls, it's almost like a picture of what? What emotion is that? It's more than I would almost say like same a sense of shame, right? Vayiplu panav is when we think of like our face falling. There's a sense of like he's embarrassed, right? Now, what's interesting about the, this verse over here is that it would seemingly be out of order. You know, the, the psychologist points out that anger is a secondary emotion. Anger is a secondary emotion. Anger is not a primary emotion. Meaning, a person normally there is, so for example, in a scenario like this, when a person is ashamed, the next thing that immediately it happens so quickly that we're not attuned to it, but, but typically anger is not, number one, it's that I'm ashamed, I'm hurt, I feel threatened, boom, I get angry, right? But anger is not number one. It, it starts with a different emotion and immediately, again, it happens in split, 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 second. But the point is that first I feel something and then there's certainly usually some, you know, I, I've been hurt in some way and then I have anger. So it would make sense. It would make sense to say he was ashamed and then angry, right? That would, that would follow the regular uh, flow of, of emotions. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say those two things. Um, so some suggest, some want to suggest that really what's happening over here is that there are two things. There are two things that are taking place. He is ang- the anger over here is, is as follows. It's not your typical anger. Um, it, it, the anger over here is directed at, right? If it's shame that turns into anger, then it's just like he just gets angry, right? Sometimes we're angry. We think we're angry at someone. Really, we're just angry at ourselves. We're ashamed. And so we direct our, our, our shame at someone else. Right? Something happened, we're embarrassed, and we start yelling at this person. Are we mad at that person? No. We're, we're just, we're embarrassed, right? So that's how, that's how we express it, right? But over here, something else is going on. And some commentators suggest that his anger is not about his shame, but rather there's an anger towards God. What anger could he have against God? Well, I mean, God's in response to his, his carbon. But perhaps to take it a little bit further, a little bit further is that Hevel, Abel, brings an offering. Cain, Cain brings an offering. God only takes the offering of Hevel. So one way to, so what would we do if we see our offering is not accepted? What would we do? Hopefully, if God, we bring an offering, me and, you know, you and I both bring an offering. God accepts your, you know, God accepts my offering. God doesn't accept your offering. Let's say that were to happen. What would you do? What should you do? Find out why. Introspect. Like, what did I do wrong? Right? How could I change? Right? But perhaps what's happening over here, perhaps what's happening over here is that Cain saying, not what could I do better? Cain saying, God. Why did you create me this way? Why did you create me deficient where my offering is not able to be accepted by you? You know, this notion of what could I do better is what we call like a growth mindset. It's an idea that this is who I am today, but I could change. I become a better person. Some people don't have a growth mindset. And if they see something, they say, this is the way I am. 
Right? How often do we say those words? We shouldn't say those words. Yeah, I am today is great. It's not who I am today, right? Is the, the, the model, you know, the, the, one of my favorite uh, little snippets is, you know, don't be yourself, be better, right? Okay, maybe that's who I am today, but who am I going to be, right? But the Kayan, it would seem, is angry. Who's he angry? He's angry at God. God, you created Hevel with this righteous, you know, this halo over his head, and you created me deficient. So he turns to God and says, God, what's wrong? What's wrong with you? Why do you do this to me? He's mad at God for doing this. And I'll prove to you that that's what he's saying because what does God respond to him? Look at what God says. If you look at verse Vav, Pasuk 6, Vayomer Hashem al God says to Kayin, Lama charalach, Why are you angry? Why are you ashamed? Halo Okay, if you do better, you'll be lifted up. God tells him, You can change. You actually have what we call free will. You have the ability to become a better person. Right? That is, so basically, what God is introducing to Kayin over here, and something that we take for granted, is that we have the ability to change. Now, you and I may take that for granted. Keep in mind, this is, what number of stories is this in the Torah? Narrative. How many stories preceded this? One. The story of Adam and Chava being thrown out of the garden, sinning and being thrown out of the garden. So the notion of free will is being developed in the Torah at this point. We don't know exactly what free will is, right? It, you know, the whole question of free will is, is questionable. If, you, if God is, let's get a little philosophical for a second. If God really controls the world, how much free will do you actually have? Right? Did God just make me do that? I just choose to do that. I don't know. Right? If you really believe in God, how much free will do I have? Right? Some people deny the notion of free will, not because of a lack of faith, because they have so much faith. They say, if God is so godly, it's impossible for me to actually do anything. And it's a question that, have been, that religious thinkers have been grappling with ever since the beginning of time. And so what we're witnessing over here is Adam and Chava sin. Got it. Now, Cain sins. Cain is not so good. He says, God, what are you doing? And God now introduces a novel idea. Hey, Cain, you could change. This is the first time in the Torah that we're being taught that you could change, that you could become a better person. This is the first time. There is something called free will. You could change your destiny. Amazing. Okay? So far, so good. Okay? Now, let's keep on reading. Uh, it's, it's worth noting. I'm going to just go on a little parenthetical uh, point over here. Um, Okay, so if you just jump to verse 9, okay, we know that verse 9, Pasuk test is after Cain already kills his brother. Okay, he kills his brother. So what, is, you know, what, what does Cain do? God says, you can change, become a better person, and you can become just as good as Havel, right? But basically, Cain, it seems like, doesn't really believe, you know, that he could change. So what is the other way to become a better person? To eliminate the competition, Right? So if I can't become like bigger, then I'll get rid of everyone else. And by definition, I'm bigger because there's no one else around. Right? So that's what he does. He kills Hevel. Now look what happens. I'm going to read this just, just parenthetical, but this is such a fascinating read. So Pasuk test. God says to Kain, the most famous words of the story. Where is Abel? Where is Hevel, your brother? What's the answer? Don't look inside. What's the answer? Am I my, Am I my brother's keeper? Right? Let's read those words inside. Okay? Right? But you missed a word. Vayomer and he said, Lo yadati, I didn't know, or I don't know, hashomer achi anochi, am I my brother's keeper? Now, the simple way to read it is, I don't know where he is, am I my brother's keeper? Two phrases. But you could read those words as one. Lo yadati hashomer achi anochi. I do not know, I did not know that I'm my brother's keeper. Now, what does that mean? What that means is as follows. And bear with me for a second. If I lose you, just we'll come back in a moment. But God introduced to Cain, the notion of free will. Free will means I could change my destiny. I could change who I am. I could make choices that will impact me. Great. How far reaching is my free will? Can my free will change not only my destiny, but can it change your destiny? 
Can my choices impact you? Or are there limits to my free will? Right? It's true. God, you introduced me to the notion that I have free will. I could change things about myself. But how far, if I go ahead, you know, uh, yeah, if, if, can I go ahead? Right? This person is supposed to, you know, th- this person has their own destiny. And I walk by and I do something. Can I really change their destiny? Is that, is that how powerful is my free will? And so what Hevel, Kayan, excuse me, perhaps is responding to God. Okay, you told me I have free will. I could change myself. But I'm responsible for killing someone? I could go ahead and, and I didn't, I did not know, I did not know that I could impact my brother. That I have the, not that I don't know where he is, am I my brother's keeper? But rather, I did not know that I'm able to impact positive or negative to someone else. You taught me free will, but how far reaching is it? In other words, okay, so you've got it. In other words, what Kain is ultimately grappling with in the story and what he's pushing back on is this notion of, do I really have free will? Am I really able to change anything? Or do you, God, is it your fault when someone dies, right? Ask yourself a question when someone dies. Who chose that person for that person to die? Was the per- when someone gets killed, did, was it the murderer who did so? Or was it God who did so? Try answering that question. The murderer. Yes, and, and God, right? And God. Which one, who's more guilty? God or the murderer, right? These are blasphemous words to some extent, but, but it's true, right? You're right. We, we hold the, 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 the murderer accountable. But did God on some level... Now, will for that to happen, right? So what Cain is grappling with over here is the fundamental idea of free will. From a very religious perspective, it's not because he doesn't believe in God. It's that, again, I believe in God so much that I am not guilty. I should not be guilty for my actions, for certainly not for things I do to someone else. God, you're in control. I can't go, I can't do things. You're the one running the world. We're just puppets. You're the puppet master, God. We have no free will. We have no control. Yes? I think... Funny, if you know my, I'm going to ask you a question. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. I think the day that you're born, mm-hmm. God puts a date on you when he's going to take you. Okay. How he takes you, it could be you're sick because you don't take care of yourself. You could be, you could die healthy because you do a good job of taking care of yourself. Of course, we all want to die healthy. But I really think that that date is put on us. Okay, and if that person, let's say... That if let's say that person is somehow like in a most, so that person you're telling me could go ahead and start walking across highways now, nothing will happen to them. They could start jumping off cliffs, nothing will happen, right? It's, it's tricky, right? So how far, right? So there's destiny, perhaps there is some preordained plan. And then there's a whole bunch of messy factors which get involved. I, I hear what you're saying. I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I, I'm not as confident as you are on that. It could be you're right. I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I don't know. Right. There, there, people say such things, but... I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in the world, everyone in this room, we should, everyone, everywhere. Yes. May have asked her. We should all be well and healthy. But it's, it's true. This notion of, you know, we'll call preordained and free will. It, it's, it's a very messy area. It's a very complicated area. When we think about how involved, like how much could a person's, uh, you know, how much does my free will interact with your free will? And how does that interact with God running the world? Kyan over here is grappling with this question of basically pushing back and saying, you know, coming to court, coming to Jewish court and saying, you killed this person. He says, I killed this person. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? I didn't kill nobody. God killed the person. See you later and walks out the court. That's essentially what he's arguing. Yes. I'm just thinking, is this the first time that any person does? Yes. 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 So maybe looking at this, he doesn't even know how to 
Good. So some, some do point that out and say that there's a lot of very uh, graphic midrashim describing him trying to kill his brother because doesn't even the concept of death is like yeah. it's foreign. Where does the soul leave? Like how does it work? And right. yes, so so there there is I guess on one level there are those who interpret that 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 the narrative in that fashion. I'm taking like a philosophical approach, but yeah, but there are those who say that he's saying I, I don't know I could kill at all. Like not a philosophical question, more of like a bio, biological question. How like how did this happen? death like I was hitting him over the head I didn't realize this will happen right like a child could say that's such a thing could be isn't there a case when a person commits suicide that's not I don't believe that's God's will um, he commits that's why we can't be buried we they can't be buried so that's tricky. It's a longer discussion. It's tricky. Historically, that that was done. We don't. We don't. We don't really do that anymore. We don't really do that anymore. It's like it's a complicated. It's a com- yeah. It's a com- yeah. 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 Okay. So let's let's just try to to to, gra- to hold on to this idea. Kayan is essentially defending himself, saying, "God, you know why I'm angry when things don't go right? I'm angry at you because you created me this way. And you know what happens when something bad happens? Not my fault. It's your fault. I killed Hevel." You killed Hevel. Okay, so he has a mindset, not just a fixed mindset, but a mindset of saying that, God, you control the world, and therefore when things go wrong, it's not my fault, it's your fault. Now let's go back to the passage we just read of the Mikalah, who is the reincarnation, whether that means practically a soul, but at least there are the same themes as Kai now fits beautifully. Because what does this person do? He comes out of court, he loses the court case. Now you and me, if we'd lose a court case, behind closed doors, we're really upset. Who would we be upset at? the judges or whatever the person we're fighting against. But this person who is a reincarnation of Cain, who is he upset at? God. He says, God, you run the world. So who does he curse? He curses God. He says, God, when something bad happens, it's your fault. It's your fault. It's not their fault because like Cain who said, I didn't kill my brother. I didn't do anything. I can't, God, you run the world. He too turns and says, God, you run the world. And let, let's think about, remember, there's a whole passage. Now, let's, let's go a little step further. What do the Jewish people do before they kill him? You know, they do, they put their hands, they so much. They basically say, we're not guilty. They basically saying, you're the one, what does it mean? I'm saying, I'm not guilty. You're the one who's guilty. Let's even take the approach of Bakhi, that the Jewish people, some of the people there were not so innocent. They mocked him. They made fun of him, which they definitely should not have done. But are they guilty? But at the end of the day, who's responsible for going ahead and cursing God? Can he say, oh, they made me do it? doesn't work that way. No one makes you, virtually, no one makes you do anything until they're actually physically making you do something. And therefore, the reason they're putting their hands on him is to say that even though they may have had some level of guilt, but ultimately, what they're pushing at is the notion that this man is responsible. That was Cain's flaw. Cain is saying, I'm not responsible for anything. And the response, no, they're putting their hands saying, even though we mocked you, even though we may have played a role in this, you are responsible. We are, as human beings, responsible for our actions. And now let's go to the next passage. What happens after God says, what happened, that the punishment for the Mikalel, he gets stoned. And then we said, there's a whole long passage. If you kill someone, you get killed. If you damage someone, you get paid. Now it fits beautifully. Why does God continue and share that whole passage? It's it's talking about human responsibility. It's saying that if you go ahead and kill someone or injure someone or injure an animal, you don't, it's you. You are, we do have free will. Shomer achianochi. I am my brother's keeper. We are all our brother's keepers. We are responsible for our actions, not just for ourselves, but for others. Therefore, it's not out of place. It's not random that God goes ahead and gives this whole list. It fits perfectly. God is trying to convey to this Mikalel and to Kayin and to all of those of us who basically abdicate our responsibility and say, oh, it's not me. It's not my, it's because of my upbringing. It's because of my surroundings, because of whatever. And God, it's your fault. No, 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 no. We believe 
however we get around this philosophically, an absolute human responsibility. That is the message of the story. It's about this person who is pushing back into it. It's God's fault. And God is saying, no, everything you do, you have to take responsibility for. Okay? So we, we, we've made sense of this picture, of the story over here. Fits nicely. Now we understand this. I think hopefully a little bit more, you know, in, in a bit of a deeper fashion. Mm. There's one thing we have. Oh, yes. Go ahead. But Hashem is more That's true. That's true. It's a very fair question why Cain, so to speak, and, and some actually suggest that Cain was not um, uh, forewarned in the sense, to, to your earlier points, that Cain did not, this notion of death, you know, he didn't realize to some extent. And maybe that's where some of the flexibility comes about. But it's, it's a fair question. Why is God more, um, uh, more forgiving towards that individual as opposed to this one? So this, in this passage, God's saying specifically, straight out, this is the way it is. Correct. This is the law. You get killed. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So one question we didn't answer yet. Okay. So we made it says the passage. The big theme of this passage is about an individual who thinks that when bad things happen to him, he could basically point his finger to God. And when someone does something bad, something bad to him, it's not his fault. It's their fault. And the whole passage is really teaching about human responsibility. That we as humans, we, we do believe in a God who controls the world, but somehow, and it's not the time and place, we delicately balance and dance between these two ideas that yes, God runs the world. Everything is happening from God. And at the exact same time, we are fully responsible for our actions. And that suggested Rabbi Breidowitz fits exactly as to why this passage shows up at the end of our discussion of karbanos, of offerings. Because what are offerings, right? This is, a, you know, in the ancient world, every faith, every group would bring sacrifices. It was normal. You know, to us, it's a very foreign idea. But back in the day, it was universal. Every single faith had this notion of some level of animal sacrifice, okay? Now, how do they see karbanos? How do these nations, how do these pagans, you know, how do they see karbanos? If you look at, you know, you can look at the Greek mythology, you know, and, and, and talking about sacrifice, you could, any, any ancient literature, basically they see the gods as, you know, dealing, doing their own stuff. And we basically are appeasing the gods. Gods don't hurt us, right? That basically, you know, gods, you run the world, right? And basically like, let's, 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 let's give an offering to the water god so the water god doesn't hurt us when we go into the water. Let's give a, 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 a you know, uh, some offering to the rain god so that, that he brings some rain down because we're kind of stuck in the middle. We're these tiny little peace people and, and the gods are basically having these huge battles up in, uh, up in the heavens and we just want to make sure that we're not damaged. We're not injured in the process. Now that is not a Jewish perspective. The goal of, of Karbanos is not that the gods are in control and we're just trying to stay out of, you know, the line of fire. That is very much, by the way, the approach of this Mikhailel, who basically says, God, you run the world. We're just trying to like, you know, you run the world. Like, stop making things so bad for us. And basically just, it's about appeasing the gods. It's about the whole notion of Karbanos, according to the pagans, is basically, is, is we're just trying to appease the gods so we don't get hurt because ultimately everything's in their hands. We don't believe that to be the case for Karbanos. Karbanos is not that we're trying to trick God. It's not a slot machine that we know it. And people think about the same thing about tefillah, about prayer. I daven. I said, God, give me a healing. And he didn't heal me. Like, what in the world is going on? I did my thing. I tried to appease the God and the God didn't, you know, respond. That we don't see the gods as, you know, we see ourselves as responsible. Karbanos is something radically different. Karbanos, as we've spoken about so many times in the past, is from the word karov, closeness. It's about a relationship. It's about us being mutual to some extent, to some wild sense that there's mutuality, that we come close to God, that we are seen as a partner to God in this world, that yes, God created the world, God in some ways controls the world, but we are able to come close through those offerings. It's not that the gods are up here and running everything and we're just trying to duck and stay out of the line of fire, but rather karov, that's, that's sacrifice, that's appeasement. 
the notion of karbanos and the way that this whole book of Yikra ends is to tell you, don't be mistaken. Don't think when you finish the karbanos, you know why we have this whole list of karbanos? So we can live a good life because we've appeased the gods properly. Uh-uh. The gods, God, is in control, but he gives us responsibility. Karbanos are something radically different. It's about closeness, but you have to understand, in order to bring karbanos properly, we have to understand that we do have responsibility. There's no notion of, you know, that, that, that I have to take full responsibility for my, for my actions. You know, another way of looking at this, I, I've shared with some of you in the past, I remember once uh, when uh, Starbucks first came to, to Canada. I grew up in Canada, I think, I think it was Starbucks. Anyway, and, and I went to go buy something. I asked the guy behind the counter if I could see some of the ingredients. I wanted to figure out something was kosher. And he goes, dude, he's like, just eat the frappuccino, whatever it is, and go do a confessional tomorrow. You'll be fine. Like, what's the big deal? And I'm like, it don't work that way. It doesn't work that way, right? It's not like, okay, I did the wrong thing and I'm going to appease the gods, right? No, I have absolute responsibility for my actions. The no, our relationship with God is not one of, again, it's, it's one of, the, Judaism promotes all the way back to Adam and Chava and Cain and Hevel, this notion of we are fully responsible for our actions, fully responsible for the way we interact with others. Karbanos is an area where we could get confused. We could say, oh, it's just a confessional. Oh, it's just a way of appeasing the gods. God says, no, 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 no. We have full responsibility. Karbanos are something else. And that's why the book of Ayikra ends with the strong notes of how responsible we are so that we don't misunderstand Karbanos. We're able to understand them as a form of coming close. And now I think we have a bit of a better understanding of the story of the Mikalah. Okay? I'll see you all next week. If not early,